Well, good evening, everyone. So glad that we could be together and study God's Word together this evening. Uh, It's a joy, really, just to join you guys again and to share God's Word with you again. And I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, despite the time change and the fact that it was dark before 5 o'clock tonight, I think I would say that this is one of my favorite times of the year. I mean, I love the cooler uh, weather, the cloudy skies. The forecast has a little rain for us, I think, tonight or tomorrow. I love the hot cider and the hot coffee, just the warm beverages that kind of come with sweater weather, if you will. And I just love the festive gatherings and get-togethers. This is really a time of tradition and a time of celebration as we approach the holidays and look at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And really, it's going to be an opportunity for us just to come together with our church family and with our individual families and express thanksgiving and gratitude to God. And in some of those gatherings and get-togethers and parties and celebrations, we might see Thanksgiving, but we also might see a little bit of extravagance. And there are certain occasions special occasions that we celebrate as human beings that have a level of extravagance. And whether it is a wedding reception or special occasion that you've been to, you could probably begin to imagine a time where you got together with friends and family and you celebrated a special occasion with some form of extravagance an extravagance that was maybe fitting for that occasion. I'm thinking things like a bridal shower, a baby shower, maybe an opportunity to celebrate a first birthday or a golden birthday. And I want you just to picture maybe the most extravagant party that you've been to and just begin to imagine how the host of that party pulled out all the stops to just knock the socks off of the person that they're celebrating. And as you think of that occasion, I want you to think of a parable. And it's one that many of us are familiar with that we see in Scripture in the New Testament, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. And if you think of and remember the details of that story, you remember that there is a father and a son, and that son spends and wastes many years in extravagance and really in wayward and wasteful living. But when that son comes in repentance and returns to his home, you all remember what that father did, don't you? He pulled out all the stops to celebrate his son, to celebrate the repentance of his child. And it was a story that caused the other brother to be jealous, but it was a demonstration of the father and his love and his extravagant love for his son and doing things like giving him his best robe, running out to meet him, giving him his signet ring, and even taking the fattened calf and killing it to eat and to celebrate the return of his son. There's just occasions in our life today and even occasions in Scripture where we see extravagance. And in the closing verses of Romans chapter 8, we see extravagance. We see the extravagant love of another father, God the Father, and the way in which he has lavished his love and his grace upon wayward children that don't deserve it, but wayward children that he so deeply loves. And I am just thrilled to be together tonight and to turn our attention to what has really been called the greatest chapter of the Bible. And the title of this evening's message is No Expense Spared. Because much like those parties, much like those occasions where you don't spare any expense to celebrate, we're going to see how God spared no expense to love those who are in Christ Jesus. So the title is No Expense Spared, and the text for our consideration tonight is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. 
Now, many people actually have observed that the end of Romans chapter 8 could be considered a miniature series on the attributes of God. If you're familiar with the chapter, you'll remember divine providence is on full display in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a favorite verse, a memorable verse for many of us, knowing that God works all things together for good. And it's a demonstration that God is sovereignly working everything together in this world for the good of his children. You also see the doctrine of divine grace in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, these incredible truths of how God has been so gracious with his people. And then we have the doctrine of divine love. And that's really seen in the final verses of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And a theologian that I love and respect, a man by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, says this about this attribute. God's love is the most awesome thing about him. And I had the opportunity to come and worship and share with you all in the summer when you were in an Attributes of God series. And I'll be honest, I was jealous that I didn't get to teach on the love of God. So now that Paul has graciously invited me back, I am teaching on the love of God. (laughs) It's because of God's love and because of the gospel that we'll see three things tonight in the text before us. First, nothing can stand against us. That'll be our first uh, consideration this evening. Then, no expense was spared for us. And third, no one can condemn us. And I'd like to read Romans 8, 31 through 34, but I want to acknowledge as we do that that it's really part of a larger unit of thought, and that continues on through the end of the chapter in verse 39. But I'll read for our consideration this evening, verses 31 through 34. What then, Paul says, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us this evening to once again turn our attention to your word. God, we thank you for the staggeringly great and awesome privilege of being your children and being your children by virtue of the work of Christ on our behalf. Father, we thank you that week in and week out, Bethany Bible Church is committed to the study of Scripture. We thank you for Pastor Paul and his ministry, even now in the Gospel of Matthew and the epistle to the Ephesians, and as we just consider now another treasure trove that you have for us in your word, not only the epistle of Romans, but Romans chapter 8. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds with fresh insights as to who Christ is and what he's done for us. Father, we thank you for the love of God that is demonstrated in the death of Christ on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, as we just take the evening to consider some of these truths, that we would walk away strengthened and encouraged because of the deep, deep love of our Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for this opportunity, and we commit our study of your word tonight to you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll begin in verse 31. And our first consideration is the fact that as believers, as those who have placed their faith in Jesus, nothing can stand against us. Now, if you've ever studied Romans chapter 8 before, you may have heard it called the greatest chapter of the Bible. Now, at the same time, we hold intentions, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is inspired by God. 
And so in one sense, all Scripture is equal, and yet there's this sense of pastors and students of Scripture that understand that Romans chapter 8 contains incredible promises and incredible truths for the believer. It's something that you might bring with you in some of the tragic and difficult moments of the life of a friend or family member to remind them and comfort them of the truths of God's providence and grace. And so I must admit, I am inclined to agree that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter of the Bible. So when Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? These things is a a term that he uses to refer back to the discussion so far in at least the immediate context of Romans chapter 8. So you might just glance back at the previous verses, 29 and 30. He might be referring to those truths when he says, what then shall we say to these things? He might be referring to the entire chapter of Romans 8, verses 1 through 30 so far. And given the whole book context of the epistle to the Romans, he might be considering the entire book, Romans 1 through 8, 30. Now, either way, whatever, whatever Paul is specifically referring to, the immediate context of chapter 8 or the whole book as, as a whole, he uses five rhetorical questions in the verses before us. I hope you picked up on that. Almost everything that Paul said to us tonight is in the form of a question. And they are five rhetorical questions, and he uses them to compel his audience to stop, to think, and to stand on an incredible summit of gospel truth as we look back on the entire landscape of God's plan of redemption. Now, I want to pause for just a moment. My wife and I live here in Thousand Oaks. I have the privilege of pastoring a neighboring local church. And part of the reason that we love Thousand Oaks is, yes, the proximity to the coast, but also just all of the hills and hiking trails in our area. We love the outdoors, and we love hiking, and we love exercise. And one of the trails in our area will lead you to Sandstone Peak. Has anybody hiked Sandstone Peak before? It's an incredible peak. It's the highest peak in the Santa Monica Mountains at just over 3,000 foot elevation above sea level. And when you're up there, it gives you this panoramic view of the ocean and the Santa Monica Mountains and the hills and the valleys, and it just leaves you with a sense of breathlessness when you're up there. Now, I haven't had the opportunity to hike Mount Whitney, but my wife has. Uh, Her family loves outdoors and hiking as well, and so one time they hiked Mount Whitney, and it took a whole of 13 hours to reach the summit. And that was, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around 14,500 feet above sea level. And so you get up there, and after this arduous trek and hike, you get the privilege, the gift, the blessing of looking out over the gorgeous view, the breathtaking vistas, and it really does just give you a sense of awe of God's creation. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. We're not at Sandstone Peak. We're not in Mount Whitney. But we are in, I believe, the highest peak, the highest summit in Scripture. And we're given the privilege with Paul to look out at an immeasurable distance from eternity past to eternity future that offers a beautiful panoramic view of the gospel, including the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And then as he proceeds through the chapter, we see that we are fully alive in Christ because of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. And that's in verses 5 through 11. And then Paul continues to unfold the beautiful panoramic view of the gospel, and he tells us that we are no longer slaves and no longer debtors, but we have been made sons and we have been made heirs with Christ Jesus in chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. And then he goes on, and and then he shares that we suffer. But while we suffer, we await a future hope a future glory, a future redemption that is beyond all comparison. And then he continues in the chapter, and he says that the Spirit of God, 
when we as Christians do not know how to pray and we experience the suffering, the pain, and the difficulty of living in a fallen world, we're told that that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of us and prays for us with groanings too deep for words. And then we find in Romans 8.28 a treasured verse that God is working all things together for good And finally, in verses 29 through 30, we're told that God foreknew us and predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. I mean, what an incredible vista of the glory of redemption has Paul just unfolded just in chapter 8 alone, let alone so far in the book of Romans. And so Paul's response like an incredible view that genuinely takes your, view, your breath away, he says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? I mean, he is grasping for adequate words. He's grasping for any words to de- try to describe the goodness and the glory of God in redeeming sinful people. It has literally taken his breath away. To use another metaphor, Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of these verses in Romans chapter 8. He describes it as climbing a grand staircase. And step by step, we are climbing further and further into the heart of God and the heart of the gospel. And again, Paul is left saying, what then shall we say to these things? So that's Paul's question And the second half of verse 31 is Paul's conclusion. And you know what Paul does for us? He answers his question with a question. And as we turn our attention to that question in verse 31, I think it bears mentioning that when we study Scripture, we study it according to the facts of history and the rules of grammar. That's our method of interpreting Scripture. If you attend the equipping hour with Brother Robert, he's going to tell you what we call that. It's the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. We study it and understand it based off of the facts of history, true things that have taken place, and the rules of grammar because God has inspired written revelation. And so here we see Paul, a masterful author, being used by God to pen the words of Scripture, employing a grammatical technique here in verse 31. It's a grammatical technique, and he uses it and leverages it to make a particular point about a particular truth of the gospel. He forms what's called a first-class conditional sentence here in verse 31, which just means that the first part of the sentence is true, and it guarantees the fact that the second part of the sentence is true. Is everybody with me so far? I know it's dark and cold and late, (laughs) so to talk about grammar on a Sunday evening was probably not a good idea. The first part of the sentence, here it's a question, is assumed to be true, and therefore it guarantees the fact that the second part of the statement is true. And an easy way to understand it is just to take the word if and replace it with since. Verse 31, since God is for us, no one can be against us. You see what he's doing there? It's a rhetorical question, and he assumes that we understand the character and nature of God the fact that he's all-powerful, that he's sovereign, and if he is on our side, no one can stand against us. And given that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I want you to think about what might want to stand against God's people. Globally, locally, what might want to stand against God's people? And as we compare other parts of the New Testament, we start to put together what Paul means when he says, no one can stand against us. And I think in Ephesians chapter 6, which I understand you all are studying and you will get there one day. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul identifies four enemies of the believer. 
I'll let Pastor Paul explain that when you guys get there. But there are four things that he identifies in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, as enemies of the church, enemies of believers. And he says there, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, number one, against the authorities, number two, against the cosmic powers, number three, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, number four, of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul, who authored Ephesians and Romans, if you put those together, he is saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that the forces that he just described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, cannot and will not stand against God's people. And I think we're all reminded that Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then if you compare Paul with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, I understand you studied 1 Peter this morning. So you have a little bit of the context of Paul's letter to the churches in Asia Minor that are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And Paul reminds them, and I really believe he's both exhorting and encouraging in 1 Peter chapter 5, and he names the ultimate enemy of the believer. And he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So in Ephesians 6, we're told that there's four enemies, and in 1 Peter 5, it's clarified for us that ultimately we have one enemy, one adversary, and his name is the devil. All of those powers, all of those people, all of those entities, all of those authorities cannot and will not stand against the people of God, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because the formation of that phrase really is, since God is for us, no one can be against us. Uh, John Stott, he says this, all the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never win since God is on our side. Friends, when you're tempted to believe in the lies of the enemy, when you're tempted to believe the lies that you're not good enough, that God cannot save you, that God wouldn't save you, that God does not love you, that you've committed something so egregious that God cannot forgive you, when you hear those lies of the enemy, all you have to do is remember Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And most particularly in Romans 8, 29 to 30, the unbreakable chain. Do you all remember that tether that ties us to the love of God? We're told that he foreknew us. He predestined us, He called us, He justified us, and He glorified us. Which most certainly means that no one can be and no one can stand against God's people. Verse 32, we not only reflect on the fact that nothing can stand against us as children of God, but in verse 32, Paul continues the series of questions, and he helps us understand that no expense was spared for us. And we see yet again another question. It's a rhetorical question, the third of this passage, and Paul explains just how dramatically God has shown himself to be for and in favor of his people in verse 32. And like the host of that special occasion, that extravagant party that pulls out all the stops and spares no expense to celebrate someone, we see in this passage that God spared no expense to accomplish an unimaginable plan of salvation for his people. Now, as we consider verse 32, which says, he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. I'm reminded of a familiar passage. And it's in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18, which is the story of who? Abraham and his son, Isaac. 
Now, I would assume, given the crowd tonight, that most of you learned the story of Abraham and Isaac when you were young, when you were little, when you were in maybe Sunday school. And I would assume that your children, if they're enrolled in the kids' program here at Bethany, are or have learned the story of Abraham and Isaac through generations of grace and the commitment of this church to teach God's Word to God's children. And I think a challenge there is it's a familiar passage for many of us. And we've heard that story over and over again, but it is a beautiful picture of how God spared one son because he knew that one day he would not spare another son. And I want us to consider that for just a moment. And you know the story. And I actually think it's quite comical for kindergartners to learn this story. Because God tells a dad to take his son up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him on the altar. Just imagine what that does to a preschooler's mind. And goes home and talks to mommy and daddy, what exactly was going on here? But we know the story. God knew all along that he would spare Isaac. And yet, testing Abraham's faith, he calls Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his son. And he does so, carrying wood for the altar, but no lamb for the offering. And just imagine what Isaac is thinking in that moment. Hey, Dad, what's all the wood for tonight? Hey, Dad, I think we forgot the marshmallows. I mean, you could just imagine what is going on here. And thankfully, just as Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, what happens? An angel of the Lord appears and essentially calls the whole thing off really commends Abraham for his faith and trust in Yahweh to provide and provides a ram, another offering, another sacrifice. And you know that really this is the picture of Abraham sacrificing his one and only son, and yet God spared his one and only son, didn't he? And I believe connecting Old Testament with New Testament, Genesis chapter 22 with Romans chapter 8, God spared Abraham's one and only son that day because he knew there would come a day when he himself would not spare his one and only son, but give him up for us all. And that son is Jesus Christ. We see in Acts chapter 2, an incredible sermon in church history from the apostle Peter. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, as Peter's unfolding the gospel to the Jewish people, Peter says this concerning God's plan of redemption, God's plan of salvation, God's plan to send his son. And Peter says this staggering claim, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God tells us that in the moment of Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, God knew from before the foundations of the world that his definite plan was to sacrifice his son, to spare Abraham's, but not spare his own. You see, the glory and goodness of the gospel is that God the Father willingly sent God the Son, and God the Son willingly went to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. I mean, not only is this a beautiful cooperation of our triune God, but this is a beautiful demonstration of the love of our triune God that the Father would give the Son, and the Son would willingly go for undeserving wretches like you and me. I mean, this is incredible, and as we advance this summit, as we advance this staircase, we are going deeper and deeper into the heart of God and the heart of the gospel that God would give his most valued, his most prized, his most precious, and his most treasured possession in the entire universe and deliver him to the cross so that we could be delivered from the curse of sin. I mean, this is an incredible depiction of the love of of God. And that's Paul's argument here in verse 32 when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up 
for us all. Now, the second part of verse 32 is the continuation of his argument that God gave his son for us and therefore God will give all things to us. The second part of the third question in our passage forms what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. Now, if that sounds any, any bit vaguely familiar, it's because Jesus often uses arguments from the lesser to the greater. And a very popular one is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount, which you all are studying Sunday mornings. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, the topic for Jesus' consideration is prayer. And he uses, he employs an argument from the lesser to the greater to help us understand the heart of God. He says this about prayer, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, you know, Jesus says some difficult things, doesn't he? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. My wife and I were uh, at the San Diego Zoo the other day. Anybody ever been to the San Diego Zoo? I uh, love Santa Barbara Zoo. It's close, it's cheap, it's small, it's easy to do in a day, but my family decided that we'd go down to the San Diego Zoo together. And our daughter, she's four, was honestly ecstatic. I mean, to see real-life elephants. That's where the San Diego Zoo beats the Santa Barbara Zoo. They have elephants, guys. Elephants and monkeys and zebras. And it's just she's ecstatic and running around the place with just a beaming smile on her face, loving seeing all these things. But what was incredible is she began to lose her excitement over the animals when she found these little contraptions, these machines posted throughout the San Diego Zoo, and they're flat penny machines. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this beautiful little four-year-old girl has the opportunity to see some of God's most glorious creatures, and she decides to go to a man-made machine and somehow convinces her uncles, her aunts, her parents, and grandparents to fork over quarters and pennies the rest of the day just to place them into this machine that creates a flattened penny with a design from the zoo. And by the end of the day, she fills up this entire collection book. You know, the, the zoo will sell that to you too. <laughs> they'll take your money for the penny that you already own, and then they'll sell you a book to collect it in. And by the end of the day, we thought that we had really taken care of her and blessed her and allowed her to just have a wonderful time. Um, but of course, as you leave, on your right and on your left is what? A gift shop. They always seem to be at the exit, don't they? And this little girl runs in and just decides to look around and starts picking things off the shelves and lands on a little toy fishing set. And you know what is her father? I did not mind one bit. It brought me so much joy to see her exuberance and excitement over this outing at the zoo and her fascination with these machines, and her desire for a souvenir to take home with her. And as her father, I had no problem sparing no expense. And trust me, we spared no expense <laughs> to go to the zoo and to bless our children with a fun afternoon. And Jesus is appealing to the heart of parents in Matthew 7. He's appealing to the hearts of fathers and the fact that they have this disposition to their children to provide for them and care for them. And then he says, if human parents are desirous of caring for the needs of their children, how much more is our Heavenly Father wanting and willing to care for the needs of His children? That is, my friends, an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we are willing to care for our children, how much more is God willing to care for our children? Paul's argument here in Romans 8 is the reverse. 
it is an argument from the greater to the lesser, where he says that if God gave his one and only son, the greatest thing that God can do, how much more will he not also with Jesus give us all things? He's saying that the heart of God is for his children. And if God gave his greatest possession, how much more will he not take care of each and every one of our needs? Now, please don't hear me say that God will give you anything you want because he is far more of a loving father than to do that. However, God will give us everything that we need to live a life that honors him and glorifies him. And so here in this passage, Paul is continuing the ascent into the heart of God, saying that no one can stand against us because God is for us, and God as our Father, if He gave us His Son, He will give us all things. And then finally, in verses 33 through 34, he claims that no one can condemn us. No one can stand against us. No expense was spared for us, and no one and nothing can condemn us. And this we find in verses 33 and 34. I want you to notice it's the fourth question of our passage. It's the fourth rhetorical question that Paul asks in verse 33, and it reminds us of the blessing of justification. So far in the book of Romans, Paul has sought to answer the question, how can a holy God be in relationship with an unholy people? That is essentially the thesis of the book of Romans. How can a holy God be in a relationship with an unholy people? And that is what every human being on planet earth has to wrestle with and come to terms with. We are fundamentally sinful, fallen, and broken, and we do not deserve a relationship with God, but because of our sinfulness and our fallenness, we are liable to Him and we are accountable to Him. Romans has often been summarized by something called the Romans Road. And if you've ever learned the Romans road, it's very helpful for you as a believer to remember the gospel, but it's also very helpful for you as a believer to share the gospel with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers. And the Romans road typically has some verses that stand out because they capture and summarize the gospel. One that sometimes it begins with is Romans chapter 1 verse 16 where Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel." And then it quickly goes to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you all know the Romans road, and you can help me fill these in. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oftentimes, people will include Romans 5, 8, which we passed over, which says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. And then typically we fast forward to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus is Lord and God the Father raised him for the dead, what? You will be saved. And sometimes I think it's a very nice touch to include Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which says, therefore, as living sacrifices... Present your bodies to God. It's this reminder that we're to respond to the gospel with a life of worship. But you know what verse is not typically included in the Romans road? Is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And because we're so close, you can turn there. Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, again, he's continuing to build his argument, this grand vista of the glory of the gospel. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what's the result? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The answer that Paul is trying to solve for us is how can a holy God be in relationship with an unholy people? And that is through the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is credited and attributed to Christians by virtue of their faith in Jesus. 
We have been justified. We have been made right. We have been declared righteous by virtue of our faith in Jesus, and that results in peace with God. Now, if the book of Romans were a courtroom, God would be the judge. We would be the defendant on trial. Christ would be our advocate. And the verdict would be not guilty. This is the crux of the gospel, and this is at the very heart of God, that He would redeem and justify a people for Himself. And the doctrine of justification reminds us that through faith in Christ, God has reconciled us to Himself and declared us righteous in His sight. And I would venture to say that if God declares believers not guilty, no one and nothing can say otherwise. If God declares you, by virtue of your faith in Jesus, not guilty, it's safe to say that no one has the right or the authority to say otherwise. We have been formally and forensically declared free from fault, free from guilt, free from sin, and free from shame once and for all through the finished work of Jesus. Satan can't accuse us, our friends can't accuse us, our family can't accuse us, and even our own consciences can't accuse us. Because I believe that when Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? The definite answer is no one. No one can bring any charge against God's elect because look at what he says in verse 33. It is God who justifies. And that we're reminded of just in the first verse of Romans 8. If you look there with me, what does it say? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The bookends of Romans chapter 8 in verse 1, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And in verse 39, there is no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one can accuse us. No one can assail us. No one can bring any charge against us because it is God who justifies. And then if you turn your attention with me as we close to verse 34. This is the fifth and final rhetorical question, and it reminds us not just of the blessing of justification, which Paul has been arguing this entire letter, but it also reminds us of the blessing of intercession. In this final verse, Paul claims that we have four unimpenetrable defenses against the lies of the enemy and even the accusations of our own thoughts and feelings. Like a bomb shelter protects civilians under enemy attacks, these four truths protect Christians from the unfounded and unwarranted guilt and condemnation that we sometimes think, feel, and experience when we lose sight of our Savior. And those four truths, those four defenses are found in Romans 8, verse 34. Now, if you're familiar with the things that Jesus did for God's people, there are 10 major things that Jesus did. And there's 10 major stages in the work of Christ and what He accomplished for our redemption. And they range from stage one, His pre-incarnate glory before He came to earth, and fast forward to his eternal glory, where he will receive worship forever and ever. And in between those two phases of the work of Christ are a few things in verse 34. First is his crucifixion, when Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. It's a historical event that God accomplished for our salvation. So he uses two historical events. The first, Jesus' crucifixion. Second, Jesus' resurrection. When he says, more than that, who was raised? 
But then what I find so interesting about the stages of the work of Christ is that many of them happened in the past, but a few of them are happening in the present, and several of them will happen in the future. And he shifts his focus from historical events to current events and what Jesus has done for his people and what Jesus is currently doing for his people. So I want you to turn your attention to verse 34. The two things in the past, his crucifixion, his resurrection, but the two things in the present moment, verse 34, where he says, who is at the right hand of God. And do you know what that means? Jesus' rule and reign over every square inch of this universe. He is at the Father's right hand. He is ruling and reigning. He lacks no power. He lacks no control. But he is ruling and reigning over everything in this world. And that is happening at the present moment. But there's one more present ministry of Jesus in verse 34, a current event, something that Jesus is doing right now. And that is the final phrase in this verse. What does it say? He who indeed is interceding for us. He who indeed is interceding for us. Now, it's interesting to think about the space race of the 20th century and now the space exploration of the 21st century. And I don't know if it's a discontentment of humanity with things on earth or their fascination with things off of this earth in space. I'm not exactly sure the nature of it, but in the 21st century, we're seeing the beginnings of space travel and space tourism with companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. And it makes me think of this incredible truth that somewhere out there in a fold in space is Jesus in his risen and resurrected body, breathing, interceding on behalf of his people. Do you remember when we last, last saw Jesus in Scripture? Acts chapter 1, right? After his resurrection and his appearance to many witnesses and the great commission, commissioning his disciples to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, where did Jesus leave this planet? somewhere outside of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 1, it says that he ascended where? Into heaven. You know we get a glimpse into heaven where Jesus is? In Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Does you remember the passage of the stoning of Stephen? One of the men that were called to really serve as a proto-deacon, to serve the needs of the church so that the apostles could commit themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And what happens when Stephen, one of those men that was serving the church, was, was stoned for his efforts? You remember in Acts chapter 7, verse 56? Let's turn there together as we close. Verse 55, it says, But he, this is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what, my friends, standing at the right hand of God. What I find so moving about that verse is that Paul reminds us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, but occasionally, you know what else he's doing? Standing at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of his people, not the least of which includes Stephen at his stoning, but each and every believer as they experience trial and persecution and suffering and accusation from the world or from the enemy, he is daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, interceding on behalf of his people. It is his present ministry. It is where he is right now until his return, until his reign, until his eternal glory. He is at the right hand of the Father, daily interceding for us. And you know what he says to his Father? When he looks down on his people that maybe sin, maybe fall short, more frequently make mistakes than we care to admit, and frankly just do stupid things because we sometimes can be stupid people. And you know what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father? He is looking down 
and saying, I died for him. And I died for her. He is representing us. He is interceding for us. And he is reminding his heavenly father that his righteousness rightly falls on us by virtue of our faith in him. Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 8 is that Jesus is the great mediator between God and men. I'd like to close reading just two scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 5, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. Paul says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he is the only person that can intercede on our behalf. He represents us as man, and he delivers us. He cleanses us. He forgives us and redeems us as God. This incredible chapter, called the greatest chapter of the Bible, reminds us that if we are in Christ, nothing can stand against us. No expense was spared for us, and no one and nothing will ever be able to condemn us. Amen? I'd like to close by reading Romans 8. The reason being is really this passage is one, one unit of thought, one ascending staircase into the heart of God. And we stopped short at verse 34, and I believe we need to read through verse 39. Paul continues in verse 35, and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In Paul's answer, in verse 37, no, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the incredible opportunity you've given us tonight to once again turn our attention to your word. We thank you for the monumental claims that Paul has made tonight and how that represents eternal truths that, God, you love us so much that you sent your one and only son. You did not spare him, you sent him to die on our behalf that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed, that we might be acquitted, that we might be justified, that we might never be condemned, and that we might never be separated from the love of God. Father, take these truths and plant them deep in us this week. Help us when we are attacked by the lies of the enemy or our own thoughts and conscience. Help us to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we love you, and we thank you that all of this is possible, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.